Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Alyssa. She is an internationally renowned contemplative health psychologist who has conducted pioneering research into how stress impacts our health all the way down to the cellular level. She has some pretty tremendous credentials, so take a listen. She studied psychology and psychobiology at Stanford University and clinical and health psychology at Yale University, where she received her PhD. And she's currently a professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UC San Francisco. But there's some important things to know in addition to her credentials. She is a very dedicated person on a spiritual journey, on a journey of wisdom, spending time at mindfulness meditation retreats. And as you listen to her, I know as I have, because I've met her before, you'll feel her deep heart and her deep humanity that mixes with the tremendous training and research chops that she has. She's such an unusual and gifted person. Her first book was written with Nobel laureate Elizabeth Blackburn. It's a New York Times bestseller called The Telomere Effect, a revolutionary approach to living younger, healthier, longer. And she's the author of a new book, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. Here's my conversation with Dr. Alyssa Appel. Alyssa, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Tammy, for your generous words. It's it's a pure honor to be here. I've learned so much from, from you and Sounds True Teachers. My sense is that you're a person who is dedicated to a, a personal mission, if you will, who has a sense of purpose behind the work that you're doing. And right here at the beginning of our conversation, I'd love to know how you articulate your own sense of purpose. Mm. My first response was, wow. That must explain the urgency I feel about time. 
that I have to use my time and be doing things all the time um, because I'm so purpose-driven and and care so much about getting certain things done. You know, I used to have an email header that said, so much to discover, so little time. And I took that off years later, just realizing like, that kind of stresses me out. <laughs> That's like the, the timer on my, you know, my minutes, my day, my life. Um, so just being a, a very naturally, um, I'm going to say achievement oriented person, although there's so many negative con connotations with that, but just, you know, having metrics of, of productivity and output attached to the mission I have, the things I care about is, you know, has made me both miserably stressed for a lot of my life. And that is probably kept me so interested in stress science for the last us 30 years, just really understanding how we can live without feeling that, uh, you know, time is a commodity and our kind of value and our achievement is based on um, how we, uh, how we produce and how we use our time. And hearing Joanna Macy talk about, you know, that mindset as being so capitalist, so extraction oriented, that I can't do enough and I need to use every minute is, you know, it's a, it's a, natural mindset that we've absorbed and adopted from our culture. And it, it's stressful. It's toxic. It creates the divisions we have from seeing, seeing things more as they are rather than as we fly by them. So I get the sense of urgency, but tell me what it is that you really want the research and the writing and all the educational work you do, what is the effect you want that work to have in the culture? So my path has been really trying to understand and show the world this tight, inextricable connection between the mind and the body. And so of the hundreds of scientific papers I've published, they're always both. They're always showing some angle, some aspect of how if we change the mind, we're changing the body in this way or vice versa. And that's why, that's partly why I went into trying to understand uh, aging and cell biology, you know, the, the molecular basis of aging, because that would show the world that the mind matters, that actually, if we can show that mind states like stress are speeding up our aging at the most molecular level, telomeres, we can talk about those, then that would be a, a check, a point of saying, respect the mind and that mind body is one and aging is a way that you know we all care about. And so it's a way in. Um, but once I checked that and we had discovered that that chronic stress states do affect our rate of aging, the, it opened up a whole nother door of discovery. So instead of just saying, ah, oh, can sit back, now we need to, you know, there's a lot more interesting questions. So I've changed my attitude about um, the, you know, viewing, um, there's no kind of end to the, you know, the scientific ways, questions we can ask. But I think the answer to your first question is, what is my purpose? What do I care about? It's to relieve suffering. And it's as simple as that. And I'm at an institute, a healthcare institution, and you know we have a lot of words in our mission statement, but it is to relieve human suffering. 
Now, you, you briefly pointed to the telomere effect. And so for people who aren't familiar with that body of work, can you briefly bring us all up to speed so we're with you here? Um, so when we want to look inside our cells and understand how does a cell stop dividing and replenishing the cells in our body, like blood cells and brain cells, there are multiple ways. But one of the ways that we now really understand is it's called replicative senescence, which just means um, our cells can't replicate anymore and they get old. And the, the underlying biology of replicative senescence is that there is a protective cap, kind of like the cap at the ends of our shoelaces that sits at the ends of our chromosomes. And that really has a very important guard job, which is protect the genes. Part of aging is this kind of wear and tear on our DNA. And these caps are very sensitive to the whole cellular environment, all the chemicals. So when we're overly stressed for too long, we're changing the messages that our telomeres are getting. And they're, they're, they're being damaged by oxidative stress and inflammation. They're getting shorter, they're wearing out. And what that means is that the cells can't divide as long for as many years. They're losing their ability to keep going decade after decade. So it's a very slow way of aging. Um, but it's how it's how we run out of ability to replenish tissue when we're older. So this all kind of comes to a head, you know, maybe around, I hate to say an age, but around 80 years old, we we can start to reach the end of our uh, telomere length unless we're taking really good care of them or we have really good genes. Now, one of the things you make very clear and explain uh, in a way that I really understood it, is that there are different kinds of stress. All, we can't lump all stress together and say, all stress is bad and all stress is going to shorten our telomeres. It's not like that. We have to understand different kinds of stress. So let's go there. What kind of stress promotes, if you will, healthy aging and what kind of stress actually will shorten my telomeres and dare I say it, probably uh, will cause me to die at a younger age. <laughs> so we could probably spend the hour on the, the types and nuances of types of stress, but to be, to be very simplistic, one of the easiest ways to understand stress is the, what we call toxic stress and, and acute stress. So acute stress are short-term stressful situations that we might suffer through or we might get through, dance through them easily. Either way, they're really not going to damage us. Chronic stress, something like being a caregiver, being in these long-term stressful situations, jobs that are just too demanding, relationships that have a lot of conflict, financial strain, situations that go on and on. Lots of us have lots of them. Those are what we think of as chronic stress. And we they're, they're not uncommon situations. So then it becomes, well, how are we... Um, how much are we floating through the day, recharging our battery and living with this really difficult ongoing situation versus having it kind of wear, wear a battery out by the end of the day. And if you think of it at the cellular level, that's wearing out the cell. There's not the restoration, the cleaning out of the cell that we really need when we're under such demand and wear and tear during the day. So acute stress can be 
harmless or not so bad. We recover really well. Chronic stress can be wearing over years. And then there's all sorts of things in between. Um, but we do know, we've studied mostly the dark side and trauma and chronic stress. And we do know that uh, those are the types of situations that are associated with telomere shortening. And then there are these, we can talk more about types of stress that we think are more rejuvenating. Yeah, well, we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about how to deal with the chronic stress that I think many of us are feeling. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about, we could just call it positive stress, stress that's actually good for us. What, what kinds of experiences are those? When we think about physical stress, like exercise, it's the it's the best and easiest way for us to un understand a positive stressor. So we go through a big stress response and we recover. And during the recovery, we have a lot of reparation. We have restoration and rejuvenation, and th those are a little bit different. So we're we're repairing damage when we are in a restorative mode and we can we can develop restorative modes also from deep rest states like meditation. But the rejuvenation part is a bit specific to positive stress like exercise or caloric restriction. These short-term stressors actually can create a younger cell, not just repairing, but actually uh, creating changes that make the cell more resistant to stress and aging. And so just to give you an easy example, we think about uh, studies that have shown this in, in worms. And in these studies, they heat up worms just a little bit and find that the repeated stress of a little bit of heat creates a really robust, resilient, long-lived worm. And of course, if you heat it too much, you get a warm funeral. You, you've surpassed the, the ability to recover. And so heat is actually great for us. We now know that hyperthermia, repeated exposure to, for example, sauna, uh, infrared sauna or hot tubs, these create all sorts of uh, positive stress in the body, repeated and positive stress. That's both good for our health, but also for our brain and our mind, good for depression. So those are ways that we can start to take more seriously that short-term stress to the body when we have the right um, formula and attitude and we're not overdoing it is actually rejuvenating and I, I will say anti-aging. Now you mentioned heat. I think you probably know Sounds True published the Wim Hof method with Wim Hof and many people at Sounds True when they check in, for example, on our leadership team, we have 13 people will describe their cold shower as part of their check in. And, you know, I got up to X number of minutes. And so I'm curious what you think about cold immersion as a positive type of acute stress. I think that Wim has brought the practice to millions of people in a really beautiful way. He embodies this um, this attitude towards the cold, which I I personally have a big, my initial stress response is, you know, please no, like anything but that, I'll take the heat. But um, I practice the Wim Hof method and his view is to relax into the cold. And 
remind yourself how good it is for you. And what that does is it reduces the psychological stress response and you're still getting the benefit of the physical response to cold stress. So what he's um, what he's been practicing and promoting has been practiced in other ways over in many traditions. And it's even been studied in uh, Western models. So cryotherapy it can help with many different kinds of uh, psychological conditions like depression and anxiety in, in different studies and big reviews. So it's not a surprise that repeated short-term exposure to cold is one of those positive types of stress. And there's amazing anecdotes and now there's more and more data suggesting benefits of the, the uh, Wim Hof method. Now, I can't help but ask, Alyssa, because you're an expert on this kind of thing, and don't don't tell Wim this question, which is, uh, you mentioned hot tubs and saunas, and, you know, I'd much rather go that direction than I would, you know, a two-minute cold shower. Will I get equal benefits from a hot tub? Because if so, I'm definitely doing that. <laughs> um, I, I'm counting on that, too. One of the practices that is probably uh, a a bit more, um, a bit better for the work, a better workout for the nervous system is hot, cold, hot, cold. So when there's an opportunity to have that experience where there's a cold plunge and there's a hot tub, we're basically, you know, really creating the range of acute stress responses. And they are a little bit different underlying the, you know, the long-term effects are very similar. We just know more about uh, hyperthermia these days. That's been more well-studied than cold. But I would say that um, as long as you're doing one of them, you don't need to do both. I also think it's a very um, harsh protocol, and I know that he's toned it down over years. But we don't think that things like hormetic stress, we call this hormetic stress, need to be done every day. They are creating a type of stress that What's most important is that we create recovery time. So for example, high intensity interval training, that is not uh, typically done every day. That's actually done several times a week so that your body has time to really recover. You mentioned this notion of deep rest. You said this is something that we need as part of our healthy aging. And I think many of us are like, yeah, I remember deep rest uh, that before the pandemic, I used to have some of that and I can't remember having a whole lot of it recently. What do you define as deep rest and how do we get more of it? I think deep rest is no mystery to this audience because it's really the best example of it is really through engaging in mind-body practices and contemplative practices. So deep rest states are when we are awake, but we are allowing ourselves to let go and really feel safe and relaxed. And so a typical example is Shavasana after yoga, massage, um, really being in nature and it can, you can be uh, moving around, but the, the idea is that we're not actively trying to control anything. We're really just letting our body have time to focus on housekeeping, house cleaning, and not exerting energy 
a lot of energy. So I think things like different practices that are contemplative, like uh, different yoga practices or moving meditation, Qigong, there are periods of restoration as well as activities. So those are all different ways to turn on and have a balance between uh, the kind of energizing positive stress and, and restoration. So meditation retreats are probably the most extreme example of deep rest because you're having um, a secluded safe period where you can really remodel your nervous system. You can have dramatic improvements in how much you're um, carrying around vigilance in every moment. So, you know, think of being in a city in an urban street, you might be used to that. You might love it and not think you're feeling a lot of stress, but we know that from brain imaging studies and other types of studies that urbanicity is stressful. Even the birds, the honeybees that live in the city have shorter telomeres and more oxidative stress than those who live rurally. So getting into a retreat environment is, it is, it is precious, it is a privilege, but it also is, as someone who's studied these states, the most powerful intervention we can do to shift the nervous system down several notches and be turning on the deep breath machinery repeatedly each day, even if it's you know short periods of meditation. Can you share with me what's going on at a cellular level when I'm immersed in deep breast? I can. And I actually think of the data that we have collected on this that's very motivating to me. I try to take a resident, you know, residential retreat a week or two every year. And it's because I, well, I, I love it. It's a very um, amazing reset. But what happens inside the cells is that we're changing all of the, the different messages to our cells from a, the common messages of fight immune invaders, stay vigilant, get ready to mount a big stress response, or maybe even we're carrying around chronic stress response. We're changing all those signals to I'm safe. I can turn off all of the fighting machinery and I can start to repair and heal. And quantitatively, what I'm talking about is that we're changing the gene expression patterns. Every protein that our cells are making we're not changing the genes, but we're changing the output from our genes in such a dramatic way so that the, the all of the proteins that we've made show that profile. They've shown that we're, we've turned on all of these restorative systems, telomerase, mito, the enzyme that builds telomeres back, mitochondria, the little batteries in our cells. So we're turning on, uh, in a sense, we're rejuvenating our mitochondria, the kind of what we call restorative hormones, anabolic hormones, like growth factors are turned on. So to, to be really explicit, Tammy, we've done a study and other people have done retreat studies where we just measure the gene expression, either during a meditation or um, in my case, we've measured gene expression um, after a week of meditation. And when we just compare the blood of someone on day one versus when they're about to leave, well, actually we get day six because on day seven, when they're about to leave, things are already changing too much, right? Because we anticipate. So day one compared to day six, can we, can we tell with machine learning, can we predict 
and understand if that's at the beginning of the retreat or at the end, we can with 94% accuracy, give me a blood sample and I'll tell you if that person is has come from their normal life or if they've just finished a week on a retreat. So just there's tenfold differences in these um, regulatory systems, what we're, what we're creating in our body that are very impressive. I've never seen such big increases in both subjective well-being, vitality, decreases in depression, as I have on retreats, and then same with biological changes. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Chances are that your life, or the life of someone you know, is shaped by pain and by the physical and emotional suffering that usually accompany it. How you choose to respond to the sensation of pain has a major impact on the quality of your life. With his new book, Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief, John Kabat-Zinn invites us on a journey of transformation using a time-tested and research-supported approach to healing that has the potential to be effective even in the face of great obstacles. You can learn more about the book, Mindfulness Meditation for Pain Relief, at SoundsTrue.com. You, you share a powerful study in the stress prescription where you compare people who go to the same beautiful center, health center, and some of them meditate and some of them relax and vacation and swim in the pool or whatever they're doing, walk around the grounds. What was the difference that you found in these two groups? Yes, this is the study that I'm referring to. And this was Deepak Chopra, who led a transcendental meditation retreat. And what, what, we, what we were expecting to find is that the people who learned the different types of meditation, yoga, self-reflection, would look better at the end of the week. And we designed such a good control group. They also had to leave their computers behind and come and eat Ayurvedic food for a week and not work and, you know, be in a beautiful environment that um, this was, this was a real test of, is it the meditation or is it really the relaxation? And what we found in the gene expression profiles was that they were indistinguishable, that both groups benefited so dramatically, the difference between the groups emerged over time. So by almost a year later, we see that those who had learned meditation and some were still practicing, they had maintained this improved emotional well-being state. So they, their levels of depression stayed low, whereas the control group bounced back up 10 months later. So we were very impressed to see these long-term effects from the meditation. And in a way, it's it makes a lot of sense. The body's not so picky. It's agnostic. You, you know, you create this great relaxation state. It's going to take it. It's going to say, turn off the, you know, stress response, turn off the fighting immune invaders. We are safe. But the mind is being trained for long-term resilience because it can now better distinguish between 
thoughts that are true threat threats and really just realizing thoughts are just thoughts. So I think the ability to just really understand the mind better is a, a big part of what people gain in a long-term way, that kind of paradigm shift from turning on the light and developing meta-awareness so you can look at the mind and see that we don't have to be on automatic pilot and be stressed out by our thoughts. We still often are, but it's that ability to become aware and, and choose our response. So I was just really impressed that there were such long-term effects. But when we looked even deeper, it was particularly under people who experienced early trauma. They benefited the most. Now, what would you say, Alyssa, to that person who's like, I just don't like meditating. It's not for me. I want to have the benefits you're describing, the long-term benefits, but I've tried meditation and, you know, sitting still like that makes me crazy or it doesn't work for me. And the last thing I want to do is go on a week-long retreat. Do you have anything else for me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that question. Um, since um, I've tried desperately find all sorts of other ways to reduce stress, both in our studies and, and always, I'm always looking for colleague studies that are um, that are really making a difference in how we see, view, feel that reduce in ways that reduce biological stress. So there are so many ways and so many fun ways, short ways, little hacks that we can do that can immediately reduce feelings of stress. But I will say nothing really works unless we first take time to turn flash, you know, turn the flashlight on in our minds, like to, to really have moments of mindful awareness and check-ins. So in my book, for example, every practice starts with just centering and grounding because nothing could really happen until we're actually know where we are, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. And to me, mindfulness is essential moments of mindfulness, this mindful awareness is necessary, but not always sufficient for um, creating states of emotional well-being. Now, you mentioned the many pandemics we're living with, and I said how I thought deep rest has become more difficult for many of us since the viral pandemic. And also over the last several years, I think there's a feeling for most of us in one way or another that the rug keeps getting pulled out. There is no rug anymore to even be pulled out. What's going on? Whether it's the threat to democracy, natural disasters, racial injustice in our faces, teenage suicide. I mean, there's this sense of everywhere. Where, how are we going to find deep rest when in the middle of the night we're waking up freaked out about X, Y, Z? And it could be personally what's happening in our life, or it could be the person we know and the person we know's grandmother or grandfather or daughter or cousin, something. It's all, so my question to you is during this time in particular, the chronic stress that I think many of us sense, and you write about this beautifully in the stress prescription, we have to find a way to work with this onslaught 
and not have it be, uh, I'll just use my language here based on our conversation, reducing the length of our telomeres every single moment because we're so captivated by it. So what kind of attitude and skills do we need to deal with our world right now and the chronic stress we're feeling? That is really the question. And there are many answers and I can only share with you what I have learned from others because I, I find this the ultimate challenge. And, and that's, you know, part, part of writing this book is patching together these different ways of viewing what does it mean to be a human right now? How can we have ease in this world where our personal, we always have our personal challenges, our daily drama, and then we have this whole layer of seeing the uh, fabric of our society, of nature, of brothers and sisters across the world just being torn apart. So I do think that, well, some of the, I'll give you an abstract answer and a concrete answer. One of the abstract answers is the kind of irreducible uncertainty that we have about our future when we can't, we always have had uncertainty. We have extreme, what, what has been called volatile uncertainty now, meaning things can change in a flash and we don't control things anymore. Um, not nearly as much as we used to think we did. So living on the West Coast, living in California, we have, um, we're, we're pinballs for whatever climate has in store for us in, uh, in the ways we also see on the other coast. And the floods, the smoke, the fires. And we know it's going to get worse. It's now baked in. It's going to get worse before it may get better. And so there is this, you know, this uncertainty that's palpable that we can touch now and name and realize that if we can't loosen up around that uncertainty and live with that better in the moment, in the day, in how we view the future, we're really not going to survive. Both personally, we're going to be where burning out, the telomeres will be shortening, um, but as a society. So in a research language, when we measure tolerance for uncertainty, we know that people who can't tolerate uncertainty, meaning they get very intense and constricted and uncomfortable and can't relax if they don't know what's gonna to happen tomorrow. There's a lot of uncertainty in their plans. And that is a predictor of anxiety and depression. So we've known that for years, that those um, mind states that drive us crazy, whatever your flavor, anxiety or depression, is very tied to how much we can relax around uncertainty. So that's a big clue to us that we do need to name it and feel how, how are we living with uncertainty right now? What, am, what are you expecting of yourself of this day of the future and just naming our expectations because that really translates into the vigilance that we carry and the unconscious stress. So we measured uncertainty during the pandemic and people who can tolerate uncertainty and be easy around it, they did not have nearly as much PTSD symptoms from the pandemic or climate distress. And so it's more relevant. It's very relevant now 
more than ever. Now, one of the, yeah, so I'll stop there and see if you want me to continue. Well, I, I do want to know more because I think for many of us, we had, you know, yeah, I can kind of relax with uncertainty. But then the, I don't know, the image that comes to me is, you know, a pot of water or whatever. The heat just got too much. And it continues, it's like there's more sources of heat in the burner and we're outside our capacity to relax yes. with uncertainty. And given that, mm -hmm. what specific suggestions do you have? Mm -hmm. Yes, that you described it really well. Our, our nervous systems are all calibrated um, upward, more sympathetic post-pandemic. We haven't had a true recovery period and now we're in for whatever's next, you know, layers and layers of overlapping um, traumas really to our to our social world, whether it's hit, hitting us personally or not. So it is critical that we take the moments that we have when we are safe and can remind ourselves we're safe because our body is not detecting safety. We're looking for danger and we're, we're carrying vigilance unconsciously even while we sleep. And there's all sorts of ways we can think about this with data and, you know, see how much is our nervous system relaxing when we sleep. But the, the fundamental concepts of safety are now more important because we need to find ways to plant safety cues in our day, to find secluded times, to take these breaks. And even just tapping into slowing our breathing that is a gift we have that we probably underutilize. I'm using slow breathing techniques in the middle of the night when I, you know, wake up with insomnia. That's one of the um, ways instead of like looking at my clock and thinking about my to-do list, I am definitely trying different breathing techniques. And I think that that's a direct path to changing the nervous system. But feeling safe is always a kind of a precondition of engaging in contemplative practices and meditation. So we can just even remind ourselves right now, I'm safe. And think about our cells are listening. There's such a concept of cell safety where if we're telling ourselves and letting our, that we're safe and letting our hands relax, our nervous system relax, our cells are listening and they need those breaks. Well, it's interesting in the stress prescription, your first prescription, you have seven different prescriptions that progress has to do with this embrace of uncertainty. And the second has to do with our relationship with control. And I was sitting here and I was imagining, okay, I feel safe in this moment. I'm totally safe in this moment, talking to you, I'm in a, you know, got a roof over my head and good airflow and a cup of tea. I'm breathing slowly. And then I suddenly thought, you know, but my wife is driving up the Sea to Sky Highway right now. And what if something happened to her? And so I, I stopped feeling safe because this is where my mind went. And I was like, I'm really mm -hmm. actually quite now this is, you know, I'm not really that worried, but I just made it up kind of in the moment yeah. as a potentiality, because even as we're sitting here and we're feeling safe, there's so much happening that we can't control. So how have you learned 
to prescribe to people to work with their minds when suddenly they think of all these things that make them not feel safe because they're imagining them. Mm -hmm. Yes. It is our challenge and that's how our mind works and finding some practices that help is a, it's like going clothes shopping, you know, it's like finding the right glove that fits tightly. So eight minute window, a worry window of, of sitting down in the morning as an, um, as someone who's kind of taught CBT, I've done this with other people. I've done it with myself, but it's basically um, allowing yourself to just write out everything that is on your plate, that is weighing you down, that you're worrying about and you get it all out. You might decide something needs to be dealt with right now, but you have let yourself create a list so that you don't have to carry it in your mind because that uh, rumination or the worries popping in our mind, that's because we're, we think that we're going to solve a problem. And as you pointed out with the example of worrying about someone else, usually we have no control, but that doesn't stop our mind from trying to problem solve and hold on to a thought repetitively. So uh, taking a limited amount of time every day to write things out, we call it a worry window, can be helpful. That's one. There are ways that we can uh, use physical stressors in a very short-term way that actually change the mind, that reduce rumination. So there are studies on that. So I, this could be anything. This could be, we've studied a seven-minute workout, which is a hit workout. And it's on, you can easily download a free app on high-intensity interval training. And it has equal effects on improving stress and rumination as meditation. And that was seven minutes a day. And so some people are never going to do that. And some people are going to prefer yoga or meditation, which is me. That's what I choose. Well, there's not just top-down ways to try to stop our thoughts, but there are body-up ways. And so it's also like realizing it's really hard to be human with this human body because I'm all geared for stress and everything outside is looking pretty you know, pretty serious and pretty stressful. And so it's befriending this animal body. We all have this animal body that is that, and some of us have it more hyperreactive. And so using these physical strategies, even comforting strategies, blankets, using all of these sensory cues, like, I'm sorry, I mean, weighted blankets is becoming common among adults. I love it, right? We used to just use them for sensitive kids, kids with sensory issues. Aromatherapy can be helpful. Yeah. I have a weighted blanket. Just, just yay. I have, I have and I'm, uh, I think we need to take away stigma from all these sensory supports. We need them. We're all going through this. So, um, pets, I mean, oh my goodness, there's so much research on these furry loving angels that many people live with. They actually have longevity studies on older people and pets. Now, Alyssa, before we end our conversation, there's I want to share my favorite part of the stress prescription. So my favorite part is the section called Be a Lion. It's my favorite uh, chapter in the book where you write about how we can take situations where perhaps we feel uh, afraid and like and and mobilize ourselves and actually feel a sense of 
possibility and challenge and you know that we don't have to be the gazelle we can be a lion so it's not like all this is happening to us we we have the challenge of the lion of the hunt this example so i'd love it if you could share some ideas really maybe make it personal of when you feel gazelle like how you take that energy and act more like a lion what do you do <laughs> Yeah, so the so the, the lion is chasing the gazelle. They're both completely stressed, and but the lion is having this kind of joyful, like, oh my God, this dinner is going to be so good. And uh that's why, you know, I'm gonna put my whole um my whole body into this, uh, my maximal stress response. And the gazelle is just completely um vasoconstricted running for her life. So we all know what that feels like, that, you know, that kind of the heart racing, the feeling that this is couldn't go well, it could feel catastrophic, you could feel, feel humiliated, there's all sorts of emotions that go along with this kind of fear threat response. And um, there are different, well, the most common um, gazelle situation for me is, is been public speaking. So I would just you know, be preparing my slides. I still do them last minute, but preparing them up to the moment and just, you know, ruminating and being, having that gazelle response. So I have vasoconstriction, my hands are freezing and I have to get up and, you know, and be coherent. So public speaking was, uh, you know, a major um, gazelle situation for me. And then afterward, I would just ruminate for so long on wish I said this, wish I said that. And I just got to a point where I just said, um, this is, you know, this whole stress response. Well, first of all, informed by this research, it didn't just organically happen, but just knowing that I'm mobilizing the stress response, why not mobilize it for good? And so the things to say to oneself that might help are, thank you. This amazing body is mobilizing all this energy. Let's just use it for good. My body's excited. My body is trying to help me in this moment and just, you know, do your best. You're going to survive. And somehow um, I have completely changed my response to public speaking. I only ruminate for a few hours afterward instead of like a few days. And um, I feel like it's been a, um, the, so the appraisals, what I say in the moment has been helpful of just loving my stress response and laughing at it and just knowing it's gonna, you know, it's there to help me. That's been helpful. But to be honest, it was a big shift was, um, becoming, taking the mindfulness training class, teacher training class, um, actually with, Mark Coleman and Martin Aylward probably have been on um, your dialogue. Your... And something just shifted in how I was able to have metacognition in the midst of stress and just um, be able to not have that, like go, go with the racing heart thoughts of like, this is not going well. I can't think. So the mindfulness, turning on the light bulb, mindfulness has been my way of turning from gazelle to lion. <laughs> what I heard you say was that having awareness of thoughts and emotions and that that awareness is cultivated 
through a mindfulness practice of some kind that you can be aware of your thoughts, not identified with them, is necessary but not sufficient uh, for uh, managing all different kinds of stress. So I thought that was a very fair uh, thing. And the deep rest is beautiful but not enough. We need the, the positive stress, the hormetic stress as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you brought up uh, public speaking because, you know, I I raised my hand during our conversation to say that I have a weighted blanket at home and I don't use it often, but I use it after I give talks. And Mm -hmm. after I give talks, I often just feel so I mobilize myself. So all that energy, but then I feel so exposed and so like I might float away and also so kind of like, I don't know, empty and terrified all at the same time. And I don't have any skin on that. That's when I use the weighted blanket in those moments is recovering, uh-huh. recovering from public exposure, basically. Yes, I'll probably use it after beautiful. this conversation. I'm just going to buy that one. That's right. That. <laughs> that's right. Very Thank good. You. Finally, a final question. Seven days to more joy and ease, the stress prescription, as I said, a book that's both accessible and deep. What's your hope for people who pick up the book, read it, start to explore some of the practices? What's your hope for people? To realize that we're not stuck in our daily stress habits, to explore, to try something new and really give it a try. There's so much exploration that we can do with our with our mind and our body and finding something that works can take repetition and practice. My hope is that we can live with the, a mindset of seeing the be- beauty and joy in e- each day, the sacredness of each day more easily because we've taken those moments for safety, for deep rest, for, you know, even just being being the lion means what we're recovering more quickly and we're out of that fear state. And all of those are are very possible. They're very realistic goals for all of us. I've been speaking with Dr. Alyssa Appel. She's the author of the new book, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease, The Stress prescription. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after-the-show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.com. Dot soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.